There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, everyone. This is Sam. Before we start, this is a reminder about my book, Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health Without All the Bollocks, which is now a bestseller on Amazon. Thanks to everyone who's bought it and given it such wonderful reviews so far. If you haven't bought it yet, then head over to Amazon where it's available in hardback, Kindle edition and audiobook version narrated by me. You can also buy signed and dedicated copies via my website, samdelaney.co.uk or from my local bookshop, barnesbookshop.co.uk if you call or email them they'll sort it out anyway on with this week's episode hello and welcome to the reset a mental health podcast without all the bollocks i'm sam delaney my guest this week is the teacher podcaster and twitter sensation george poynton george has been teaching at primary and secondary levels for the past four years During lockdown, he started publishing hilarious threads documenting the stuff his young pupils would say in class on a daily basis. It blew up quickly, and he now has over 170,000 followers on Twitter. I got to know him through the West Ham podcast we co-host called You Irons. George is a really funny bloke, but I've always been taken by the passionate and insightful way in which he talks about teaching kids and education. As a parent, I'm generally awestruck by the work teachers do, but also disheartened by the difficult circumstances that they're working under. There's an increasing mental health crisis in schools among both the teachers and the pupils. I was really pleased that George agreed to join me to discuss this and much more. I hope you enjoy listening to the show. George Poynton, welcome to The Reset. Oh, cheers, Sam. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure, mate. Uh, We know each other well from doing our West Ham podcast, but um, this is a different sort of chat we're going to have today. I'm fascinated by, you know, the the situation that education is in today in 2023 in this country and the role of of the teacher in 2023. How would you describe it to me? But what's what's it like being a teacher in this day and age in Britain? Um, I think, to be honest, I think the biggest thing is when it comes to the job role itself, 
you've progressed so much further than just solely being a teacher. It is absolutely impossible to just go in and be a teacher. You're underneath this umbrella where you have to do so many different roles at so many different times that I think for those new NQTs or those people going through their teacher training, they go in with the idea of like, I can't wait to be a teacher, inspire kids and all about the topic that I love and hopefully pass that on. And what you actually get is that's probably about 20% of what you do. And the rest yeah. of it is followed on with, you know, being a social worker and a behavior psychologist and a bouncer and everything else that falls underneath it. So yeah, that's, I would say that's, that's probably the biggest thing. Is that because schools have changed, kids have changed, or is it just because, you know, what I'm saying is, is, is there more problems than there was, say, 20 years ago in schools or when I was at school? Or is it just that, you know, schools and teachers now just feel more responsibility to focus on more than just educating in an academic sense? I do, I do think, you know, I think it's obviously you hear a lot of parents because obviously part of the job is to speak to a lot of parents at different times and they talk about behavior especially how it's so different we would have never have got away with this stuff in my day and you know so on and so forth but I don't think the behavior is any different I just think it's become our role to have a higher standard of care for each mm. individual each, each individual people that comes through before I would think you can very easily slip under the radar or it was much easier to say we don't want to be at school you've done something bad see you later off you go well somebody else yeah. will find something for you it's almost impossible to do now the the whole goal is to keep them in education and keep them safe yeah. and safeguard them in a way that means they have a safe place to go to every single day they're in an environment where they are given the opportunity to thrive regardless of who they are yeah. as a person yeah, I just I, I honestly just think it we it's highlighted more some behavioural issues because we have to talk about it more. There's more of a duty of care for teachers to 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 try and help or to try and solve those problems. Yeah, I mean, see, as a parent, when I hear you saying that, I think that's wonderful. And I appreciate that from a teacher's point of view, it's completely changed the role of what a teacher is. But when you look at what society, you know, the role that a school plays in a, in a community you know mm. as a parent you think yeah absolutely that is the role it it should be playing and it and it's wonderful that they now see it that way because certainly when I was at school it wasn't it wasn't seen that way it was sort of in comparison to how schools are now I see the kids my schools go to just I look back on my time and I think well, it's a fucking absolute wild west teachers <laughs> were like we'll teach you and for the rest of it good luck you know, we'll intervene yeah. if there is a, a an extremely bad fight, and uh, or the, or at least the PE teacher will. Most of us won't, right? And that's that. So in a way, it's wonderful. But I suppose what we'll get onto is like how possible is it for you to be able to fulfil in all these important roles with the time and resources you have? Um, mm. You know, this is a mental health podcast. First and foremost, I don't want it you know, people to think that we're going to get political, but I think that, you know, it's inevitable. We're going, I'm going to have to ask you questions about that and about mm. how plausible it is for you and your colleagues to be performing the kind of vast role, so, you know, collection of roles that you're talking about. But before that, mate, uh, you might as well just tell me a bit about 
why and how you got into teaching yeah um so i went down a bit of a different path some people kind of go to university and then train to be a teacher and they go in i actually went in unqualified um and one of the things i thought was the best thing about going in unqualified was i could make the decision to walk away and not feel like i owed anybody anything or had spent excess amount of money trying to train or go through university Mm. and um i fell in love with it i really really did i fell in love with the idea of I, I, in that year that I had that where I was unqualified, it was like you're working towards becoming qualified, basically. But you do it in-house. You kind of go in to the yeah. trenches on your first day. Like learn on the job, basically. Exactly, which is which was absolutely terrifying. Like I started in, what, September of 2019. Mm. And then all of a sudden it was like by September the 2nd, I had a class of 30 kids walking into the room and it was like, I don't feel prepared or ready for this in any way, but they're so understaffed, so under pop like this. They just, they give you that opportunity. If you, if you're eager enough and keen enough to be like, I'm unqualified, but I want to learn. I want to do like modules to, you know, you have a mentor, but it's terrifying. It's so scary. And it's trial by fire really. But mm. I, I loved it. And I've, I've really got a strong bond with those kids that I had throughout that year that has carried through into what I'm doing now. Ultimately, nobody gets into teaching if they don't like kids or they don't yeah. find some kind of appreciation in, in the way that they work and the, way, and the people that they're going to become and stuff like that. So, but yeah, that was how I started. And yeah, so now I've been doing it. What's that? All through the, it's kind of a blur because we've had the kind of pandemic years in between it. So I don't feel like oh, I'm well, quite quickly. If you started in September 2019, in, in your first year, a few months yeah. in, you were teaching in lockdown, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. By the February, it would have been that I was just all of a sudden not in the classroom at all, which in a way, personally for me, was a real blessing just purely because I was actually able to step away from the classroom and learn a little bit and kind of. I couldn't imagine somebody jumping in for that whole year and just having to keep up the pace of everything. But, Mm. but yeah, this is, this is kind of the first full year I've had where I've been solely stable. Like I've been in the room the whole time and I'm seeing, I'm not in bubbles or anything like that. There's no boundaries to it. It's the first year that we've kind of been able to do that, which is kind of strange really considering I've been here for what feels like forever. Yeah. And you you did something that I believe is quite unusual in that you started out in primary school and then yeah. you moved to secondary school. What? Why did you do that? And what are the main ch- changes that you've seen? I always I always thought my sensibility suited primary a little bit better. Um, there aren't a lot of male teachers in primary schools, and I thought my skill set was better utilised there. I really like working with younger kids and I find they're more open to teenagers and natural. I mean, we all know what they're like. So younger kids are so much more susceptible to that, like energy and they get really, you can see it in their face when you're doing something well and you're, you're making progress with them. You can really see it clearly. But where I started to get really fatigued with it was it's, it's, everything you're 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 becoming a a jack of all trades and and all these subjects and all these Mm. different curriculums that i wanted to specialize yeah and i wanted to think like actually where 
where am I best in? Where can I help the most? And then it turns out something came up around. So my, the school that I worked for is part of a wider academy. Yeah. And it was just like, it was, it was just that, that sort of a role came up and I said, look, I really want to, I'm looking for something different. I think I like what I do, but I feel like I can be more specific. And then I moved on to secondary and it's been, it's, it's not without its difficulties. Absolutely. But it, it is for the most part, a really enjoyable place to be. Um, what are the, the challenges from, from a mental health perspective? What are the challenges? First of all, in primary school, what were the sort of things you had to deal with on a daily basis and how much of that, if it, I don't know if you'd call it mental health or pastoral or whatever, how much of that was your role right from the start in primary school? D- d- like day one, I would say even before you walk in that door, you suddenly take on the responsibility of these 30 babies you know what I mean these 30 little people walking about that haven't any understanding of the world or any understanding of their own emotions and feelings and and you the, the toughest bit is that especially the area of where I'm from the area where the school is mm. it's really underfunded it's mm. it's heavily underfunded it's heavily overpopulated and it's it's a deprived part of the UK that's mm. unquestionable and then what happens is you're working so much with the pupils and also their parents. Their parents are really looking for the best out of them, but are struggling with them in terms of they might have a large family or they we had so many EAL, which is like um, other languages. So we had kids having to learn English quickly as possible so that they could speak for their parents, so that they right. could take that responsibility on. And this we're talking about five, six-year-old children. Mm. And it's so hard not to like feel that if, if suddenly they're not picking up English quick enough, you feel that weight yourself. You're, you're not just letting down one pupil for one year. You're becoming a hindrance to an entire family because they need that support. They need that person to be able to speak English. Yeah. That was the really, the really tough bit was, and you, the best thing was speaking to like experienced teachers and just saying, it's acknowledging just how stressful this is, but they're really good. And they've had so much experience of just saying like, that's not your role. And if you start thinking too far ahead, you're going to drive yourself insane. Right. You can only make the small progresses throughout the day that you would make with any other pupil. Don't take that weight of responsibility on yourself because you, you drive yourself mad. And I have at times just gone, just been sat at home. I remember coming home once just, as I got in the door, I just sat on the sofa, like in full suit and tie from like five o'clock when I walked in the door to like 11 o'clock at night when it was time to go to bed. I just sat in the same place on the sofa because I was so mentally, physically drained that I just thought I, I need to not do anything, not think about anything at all, just to have the energy to go again tomorrow and to do it again tomorrow. And that was when I knew I, I needed to just be able to find ways to manage that or find ways that make that bearable. And what is that? Is that just acknowledging, you know, the, what you can and can't control or, you know, where your focus lies, not looking at those bigger pictures of the, the kids' lives. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's acknowledging what is in your responsibility and what you can tackle on a day-to-day basis. And then 
what is the actual end goal? Because especially in primary, you only have them for a year. Mm. Uh, they're not going to become, you know, Wordsworth by the end of this year. They're a six-year-old kid. What you actually want to do is get them empowered and confident and make them feel like they want to learn this stuff and care about this stuff, regardless of what it, the implications of what that means for the family. Mm. It's about the individual pupil, and you have to kind of take that into consideration. Because not all of these kids work in the same way. One of the best challenges that I loved was being able to work almost individually with them, being able to find the unique ways that work for them or the settings, the environments that work for them and stuff like that. And that that suddenly changed from this huge picture that I was struggling to comprehend to this tiny photograph where I was thinking, I can manage this now. I understand what this is and I understand my role. That that was a huge stepping stone in just acknowledging what you can do, and again, what is out of your control. And when you see uh, children who you feel might be struggling emotionally, uh, you know whether that's to do with things at, at home or in the school. Um, how much? How difficult is that to deal with? To not become too emotionally invested or upset by things like that. Especially young kids. That's why I've always really admired the teachers at the primary school where my kids went because, yeah, I just think it's very upsetting to see young children in in sort of emotional turmoil. So how, how do you cope with that? I actually find it I actually found it easier in a primary setting than I do in a secondary setting. Children, while it's 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 so far removed from them and they're so innocent in all of it that's where you get the great deal of like you can't help but empathize and feel all these strong emotions towards mm. it but they're also you can also help them along you can teach them things like resilience you can teach them to be individual like mm. you can bring stuff out of them a lot easier than what mm. you can when it comes to secondary because these kids are 13 14 year olds and this is the shit that they've had to deal with their entire life and it's i found i what i find difficult is just how how easily and quickly they are to these terrible situations that happen in their life and they're so quick to just be like well it's fine because that's always been my situation so what's right. going to change with this so that that to me was always that's always the toughest bit i think yeah what about like kids being bullied and stuff like that is is that the sort of thing that you can you see and kids can be surprisingly resilient about or is it frustrating that you can't sort of you know really there's only so much you can do to put an end to that sort of stuff how does that feel the worst thing that you hear i think is when a when a pupil's being bullied or it's an extreme case of just like pupils are being emotionally manipulated or they're being physically harmed in that kind of way is when they feel like you can't do anything because the system's let them down so many times before. Right. And sometimes you can't do anything for every time that you can bring a student in, have restorative conversations, talk to parents, do everything within your power to tell this set of pupils to leave this set of pupils alone or whatever the situation may be soon as they leave those school gates it's it's beyond your control and it does go without your control and you you worry you sit there and you think oh i hope they got home okay or as mm. you sit there and think oh i i hope they went this way home that i told them to go because it avoids this 
bit. Yeah. And I couldn't even, I'm not a parent, so I couldn't imagine that feeling of it being your child as well. And just suddenly yeah. it's not just an academic setting, but like that's 20 times over when it's your own child and you're sat at home being like waiting for them to get through the door, just making sure that they're okay and they're fine and nothing happened. It's a lot of, lot of bloody worry to, to carry around with you um, every day. What, what, are the, what are the main sort of issues that you're dealing with in terms of kids and their mental health? And what are the main sort of uh, challenges that you think that they face at, at the moment? I think the, the thing about teenagers, especially, so when we look at like a secondary setting is throughout their whole time as teenagers, none of them, whether they're in year seven, so they're like 11 year olds or year 11 when they leave us, which is like 16, none of them still haven't figured out who they are yet, what they actually like and who they want to be as people. So there's so much of that that they put upon themselves. They try to be things that they're not and they try to do things that they're not. And like, I I see it so clearly because I was exactly the same at 15. I got ridiculously into like the music of the 1960s and had like a Paul Weller haircut that nobody else in my year had but it was my identity for a bit it was like what reflected off of me and alongside that they're also having to deal with this fucking mad world of social media and the everything is exposed to them at any given moment and alongside that you've got professionals in our setting and parents hopefully around them trying to teach them these values and morals and stuff yeah and they're just what who do they listen to at any given moment who do they where's the through line here and i just think it it, being a teenager at this especially in this day and age you really if you can get out of it and be somewhat sane you've done a really good fucking job I wanted to ask you in terms of that search for identity, I wanted to ask you about the influence of like Andrew Tate and that kind of idea um, and how it sort of that idea of masculinity, toxic masculinity and how it seems from what I hear, but you'll not, you'll be able to tell me whether it's true or not, that it, it seems to be appealing to a lot of young, young lads nowadays. Is that something you see? Um, yeah, I actually, um, one of my roles is I'm kind of responsible. We have like a um, uh, like a setup in our school where if a member of staff hears some form of sort of discriminatory language or, or sort of misogyny and those kind of things, mm-hmm. we have them in for sort of an indirect intervention to talk through these things and to kind of open them up a little bit more as to how far your words carry and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's actually one of my roles, one of the things I'm responsible for. And that bloody man is responsible for so much of young teenagers are so impressionable and they're constantly looking for the next thing to attach themselves to. And when somebody oozes in the way that Andrew Tate does so much confidence, so much bravado. And then on top of that being very rich, very successful, it's so hard to to say to them, this is not okay. And they come back to you with, well, this person has millions of pounds, Ferraris and Bugattis out of the ear. Mm. And I've seen you drive in your car and sir, and it's like a banged up Ford Fiesta. What do you know that he doesn't know? Because he seems to have got it right. 
and it's that's the conversation that you're having to have over and over and over again because power success money these are all things that young people strive to have but they don't know how to do it yet and they don't know what that means so they just see this person spouting these ideologies and then your job is to kind of put out the fires of that or try in some way to just make them open up their mind a little bit more to say if this is what you really believe this is what it impacts further mm. and why is it's, there I mean, tough... the, the scary thing about that is that it all stems from a preoccupation with status and money mm. and, and and like where is that coming from is that just a societal symptom i mean you know at primary school is it not like you know then then is, how, how easy is it for a, for a for a school to sort of fight against the tide of who knows what people like andrew tate or just the bloody advertising industry and consumerism and all the other stuff because it is scary. In my generation, I grew up as as one of so-called Thatcher's children. I grew up in that era, and we were all supposed to be uh, uh, sort of obsessed with that stuff. But it's nothing in comparison to today, where people's like only aspirate young kids have got this aspiration about money and status. And where does it come from? And how can it? What can you? What do you say to these kids to try and counter it? It it must come from just being exposed to so much of it at, at an instant. You didn't have that that sort of situation where everybody's views and everybody's opinions are thrown at you the second you go onto your phone. Mm. You kind of were only, you could only be as wide as your community. So the area that you were in, the people that you knew, you might have known somebody in your area that was rich and you may have seen celebrities on the you know telly or whatever, but it was still there was still a barrier between those those people like the mega mega rich and the you know the mega successful there was some illusion between the two now they see it they see it clear as day and they see these people one being able to stay and do whatever they want and get away with it and two even when it comes to like who they upset and who they offend they brand those people as weak or you know yeah. wrong or insignificant but the conversations you really need to have with them is you have to strip it back to why. Why do you why do you attach yourself to this? What's what are the key traits that you want to be as a person? And how do they match this person here? Mm. What you actually find is they don't they don't know why. They don't know why they they want to say these things. They have no understanding or reasoning behind it. Sometimes it's because it's shock value and then people start taking notice of them for thinking and saying these things other times it's a case of everybody in my life is not in a good situation either financially successfully and this person seems to have it all made out if i think these things i think differently to the people around me and i can get out of this situation but for the most part they don't know they have no idea they're just seeing something and and attaching themselves to it. Can kids be sort of taught empathy? Is is empathy an issue? I mean, I've been, uh, I'm no uh, psychiatrist, but. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm told that, you know, when there's when kids are adolescent, they kind of their brains are still in development. They physically have a bit of an em- empathy gap in their in their brain. I don't know if that's true or if you know if that's true, but is that the issue here i mean when you sit down with problem kids and you stage interventions because they've got they've expressed toxic opinions or whatever is it possible to sort of teach them to see things from other people's perspective more clearly i think i i'd again i'm not a psychologist either but i have to believe that you can because if i don't i what what would be the point in these conversations and these interventions? So I have to believe that even if the next time they go to say something or the next time they think um, in a kind of toxic way, that they're just second guessing themselves. They, even if it's just a case of like, they pick somebody over somebody else because one is female, then there's that second bit within their brain that just says, oh, I did that because they were female, or I did that because of this. Then you're slowly building towards them, just acknowledging their their bias or their prejudice or their or the issue, fundamentally breaking down what issues they, they have and what they see as a problem. But yeah, I think, especially with the younger ones, the, the empathy that you're teaching is like one kid's whacked another one with a stick and you're going like, don't hit people with sticks, it hurts. And you can see that kid's crying. They can acknowledge and go like, oh, okay, I don't like it when I cry. So <laughs> that's, I'm not going to do that again. Um, but when it comes to, as soon as they get older, they don't see, they don't see it as clearly. It's not often that, you know, it's that clear in front of them. They can hurt somebody really deeply and fuck with them for like years to come and not actually know the extent of that. So we have to come in and be like, you've hit that kid with a stick and they're not crying now, but they will cry when they get home and they will hurt and they will not be able to find the identity within themselves because you're stunting that because you Mm. keep whacking them with a stick every single day. So that's kind of the way that we go about that. Do you feel that like, however much you do and however well you're doing it, you know, it's as long as you can't control what's happening outside of school, then there's only how much can a school actually do? Yeah, it, everything is taught, um, and it all stems from home. And it even in these cases of when we have these interventions, and our first point of call is to call up the parents and just say like, so we've had an issue. Uh, we need to bring so and so in for an intervention just to talk through some of the things that he's been saying. And they're backed and supported and they they feel that their freedom of speech is being threatened and they feel there's a real 
it it's so clear it's funny that you get it one of two ways you get a parent that feels like that and feels really strongly that they should be allowed to say and do what they feel is right and then there are parents that are are fucking mortified and have no idea where this has come from but it's come from a place of they've probably let them do their own thing and then they found solace somewhere else yeah and then that's a wake-up call for those parents what you tend to see is those ones kind of stop doing that they kind of grow out of it or they acknowledge that like okay i'm upsetting people that i love or are close to me and people that around me aren't happy about this i need to cut this out but when it's enabled when it comes from the house and it's like they're saying no you should be allowed to do these things no you these are these are okay like then they're not going to listen to you because they have a it's almost like a um a higher authority is at home telling them that yeah. like, don't listen to your teachers. They don't know anything, mate. I know what's good. Yeah. And I would have done the same if my dad had, I remember I got in trouble once at school for dicking about with one of my friends. They called home. And when I got home, my dad said, like, I don't really think you did anything wrong. Hmm. And it's like, I felt like, oh, good. I don't feel like yeah. I did anything wrong. That's fine. So I didn't care when I was sat in a detention. I didn't care when the teacher was shouting at me about it because I knew I was in the right because my dad said. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember being in the same situation. My mum would always sort of take my side. That said, it you know, I, I was I was in trouble, like like you say, for effectively dicking about. I, yeah. You know, I don't know what she'd have been like if I'd ever been hauled up for serious bullying or certainly like prejudice, like racism or, or something like that. Then it, it might have been a different story. I mean... You know, obviously, this is mainly aimed at men, and there is a lot of discussion about masculinity. And on the one hand, you think of like the younger generation being much more woke, much more literate when it comes to mental health, uh, yeah. more literate than than certainly my generation was, probably your generation too. You know, this is, the words, the language of mental health are just used so much more widely now. Also, just tolerance, you know, about things like sexuality, awareness of you know, racial injustice uh, and so forth. On the one hand, I sort of think it's great that young people are so progressive now. But on the other hand, I sort of hear from my daughter at her school um, that that boys are, you know, I suppose it goes back to the Andrew Tate thing, but actually sort of performative sexism and homophobia and fighting are, are still really popular or arguably more popular than ever. So how do you see it? Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, we spoke, funny enough, we spoke a little while ago um, uh, and kind of how we got onto this conversation, how you kind of got me here was like, well, I was talking about, one, the use of kind of homophobia, uh, Islamophobia, depending on your area, racist prejudice. It's not only used in schools and talked about in schools, but it's it's done so freely amongst the kids and so casually amongst the kids and it's in a way that like it becomes it's it's spread like wildfire you can manage it when it's a match but like suddenly you're then dealing with like a whole forest full of fires and you're like how did we get to this point and we got to this point because we tackled all the big stuff but when it comes to the kind of like throw away you know what almost seems like trivial or joking because sometimes it is joking these are friends these are guys guys that are friends with each other and they happen to be from two different cultures and they're using words that they shouldn't words or saying things that they shouldn't say that they then 
the barriers are down they then don't see why it's a problem mm. and they don't see why it's an issue so i think the worst thing is is when it's done it in its casual nature because it's so hard to manage and control yeah scary really scary and you know but a lot of it comes back to in my mind i've always thought that the, the way the society seems to work amongst the adults and it's obviously dripping down to kids is that there's this sort of this culture wars business there's a sort of a false kind of um dichotomy that's been if that's the right word probably not um that's been established between like you know on the one hand you got whether it be andrew tate or amongst the sort of gammon community in this country, you've got your Clarksons and your Piers Morgans, and they're the ones who are like unafraid to be, and it's what they dress up the fact that what I and probably you would call as just like plain ignorant prejudice and meanness. They dress that up mm. as being brave and, and willing to say whatever they want. And they sort of align themselves with being tough as opposed to mean or stupid. They've successfully mm. aligned their image with just being tough and free. Right. And then they will present the sort of anyone who who kind of is 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 more aware and sensitive to injustice and prejudice and stuff like that uh, as as woke and that's that word has taken on some sort of meaning that's a little bit limp and pathetic and weak right and mm-hmm. I think that is that sometimes I think that's what kids see they don't understand that you know being an arsehole there's nothing tough about that and actually if you're uh you know if you're woke or whatever you want to call it it doesn't mean that you're a barefooted hippie who's kind of like you know boring and whingy and weak do you know what i mean it's like a false mm. idea but from what you're saying about the appeal of andrew tate lads are sort of seeing it that way too much maybe they don't have enough sort of positive role models who are also fighting against the idea of injustice and prejudice to be honest George I'm riffing now I mean I don't know where (laughs) I just made all that up but I do yeah you know what I mean though you sort of think why do these kids why have these kids been tricked into thinking that being nice and open-minded and tolerant is in some way weak and pathetic I I think it's because there's nobody in a position of power that is those things because you ultimately if you have to get to a certain level of status and power you have to have done something you have to have stepped over somebody you would have to have created an image for yourself that's like i will take no nonsense i will take nothing but the best and i just think kids attach themselves to it i really do i just feel like it's so black and white for them and they can make sense of it so clearly the whole like idea of being woke is really complex and it's really tough to kind of be like we have to both you have to both be open so take some of the demographic of my school that are white british lads being woke to them is like one they have to be open and aware of all of these prejudices while also simultaneously being aware of the privileges they hold Hmm. and being okay that the balance may be shifting and these people in minority groups need more uh platforms and need more you know they, they they need more we need to unbalance it a little bit so that we can balance it all back out again and that's so complex for a 13 14 15 year old boy to get their head around that it is so much simpler to feel like you're under threat and to attach yourself and go like i know what i am and i know what i want to be and this is who i want to be yeah it's so clear 
Mate, you're, you've summed that up so well. It's just easier. And it's the same yeah. for adults. So it's easier. It's less complex, less nuanced, less to get your head around to take that easy route of feeling like the victim and almost like lashing out than it is to sort of absorb all that. So you're so right. It's just easier. It's just easier. And it's such a yeah. – so no wonder there's kids so easily brainwashed into it. Um. Mate, let's talk more about you uh, and and what what it's been like for you coping. We've touched on it a little bit, and you know you, you talked about how some nights you just had to come home and and sit and sort of almost switch your brain off. Um, has there been other lows? Is is you know is mental health a problem amongst the teaching community? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's an issue. I mean, we're losing we're losing a third of all our teaching staff we're, we're we're seeing such low numbers of newly qualified teachers quitting off uh, new, high numbers of newly qualified teachers just quitting after a year they can't do the year and they're gone and we i've seen it even this year people that have started in september have left and we're in april and it is purely because mentally it just it's it's so much. We have like seven week gaps. So seven week terms, then a gap. That's when a half term or a, you know, it's roughly about seven weeks. Some are six, some are eight. But the first week when you come back, you're full of this like new pep and energy. And you've got that sort of mental drive to like sustain bad behavior in classroom or to deal with the unkindness of the people. And you can kind of like, you start spinning a couple of plates as soon as you come back. Then by that third week, you've spun another two plates, but those two are still spinning and you, you can do it, but it's becoming really difficult. Then you think by week seven, you just stood in a room with loads of broken plates and thinking I've made this mess. I can't continue to do this again and again and again. Mm. And mentally it just becomes so exhausting because because of all those roles you have to take on because of all those extra things and then on top of the social stuff those pastoral things those behavioral things you're having to plan and engage pupils and you have to be more engaging than a mobile phone you have to be more engaging than the football scores on the weekend you have to be more engaging than all of these other things and ultimately, you're fighting a losing battle because, like, I feel for those people that teach things like maths. How the hell are you making that in any way more exciting than other things going <laughs> on in their life? So it is, it, it that's, is a, a that's a brutal assessment of maths, mate. I mean, to be honest, I don't even know what you teach. No. What do you teach? So I teach two things. I teach STEM, which is science, technology, engineering. It's more engineering stuff. Right. Uh, but maths yeah. is in there. You got some front having a dig at maths <laughs> when you're doing bloody science, mate. Yeah, yeah. go on. But you can engage them a bit more because of its engineering things. Yeah. You can kind you know, of you can make things explode, can't you? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you've done it wrong, good. but that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then I also teach PSHE, which is like um personal it's almost like all those social sciences those health topics right they're all crammed into one thing now but it those that lesson's great because that's the thing that often we used to find at parents evenings when we get parents come in they go like why are they learning this about 
Newton's law of physics? Why are they not learning about taxes? Why are they not learning about it's like, okay, well, now they're doing that in these lessons. Right, now we actually okay. talk about those things. And on top of that, we talk about things like prejudice and discrimination. And oh, good. You know, they, they, they actually have that in the timetable now, which is great. But then sometimes for kids, they just see less of a reason to care about that stuff because it's like suddenly now it is attached to school and not attached to the wider world that they live in. So they see it as a as a subject. Teenagers by nature are defiant, so they don't tend to enjoy things when you present it to them and talk yeah. to them about it. But um, yeah, that's what I teach. What um, and then you know, on top of all of this stuff, you're, you're juggling all these different roles. You, you're exposed to very stressful situations every day, and then of course, you know, Joe Public, the likes of me, we we get exposed to a big story like the the head who who took her own life because of an Ofsted um, inspection recently. I mean, how much of a role does that play in everyone's levels? Is, is that mainly just the head teacher or do you all have to sort of like, does that affect you all on a mental level and emotional level? When it comes to things like Ofsted, you Ofsted mean, have yeah. Those. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it obviously it affects, it's so reflected onto those sort of higher senior members of staff and those head teachers and, you know, SLT members, so the senior leadership team, obviously it's incredibly reflective of them, but you bear weight and responsibility no matter what level you're at. And it, it is the reflection of the pupils that you're dealing with. If you get a really low score in your Ofsted report, what you find is less engagement from kids because it's like, well, we've had a team of people come in and say this school of shit. Our parents are now saying this school of shit. I think this school is also shit. <laughs> there we go. What what can you give me that isn't going to be what everybody's saying? So it's like if if suddenly they come in and they say you're doing an excellent job and they give you all these great remarks and what you have things to like empower those students. This is such a fantastic place to be. Look at these people that came in and said you guys are fantastic. Everybody, everything around you is great. They can kind of you build them up with that. You you empower a student with that. It's so hard to empower them when they know the environment they're in is being dragged through the mud. Mm. Mm. You know, we, me and you are both football fans. We see it in football. If the team's playing badly, it's like, why would a youth player sat on the bench give a shit? Why would they not just be like, well, they're going to get relegated. Oh, your star player. I know you're getting relegated. I'm going to be off in the summer anyway, or I'm just not going to care. I'm going to graduate and go and do something else. Or it's so hard to motivate young people anyway, that on top of that, you can just see where, where these, these SLT members, these senior leadership team members are just, they're just driving themselves into the ground. With so, I mean, I don't want to be sensationalist, but I put together all the things. I've got two questions before I leave, right? One is, you know, it, the picture you're painting, mm. In some ways, it's very positive. You started off by saying how, how the, the role that you guys are playing in your community and in society is, I think, from a parent's point of view, like brilliantly positive, right? And and although it can make life hell for you guys, you know, it's, it's wonderful that that's how educators now see themselves, right? Um, but on the other hand, there's, there's so many challenges and we haven't even touched upon things like the post-COVID situation and, of course, you know, austerity and years of underfunding in these schools and so forth is is it a crisis is there a crisis going on you know in in education in this country 
yeah, there's a huge crisis. The crisis comes from, again, like you're saying, the austerity, the underdevelopment, just losing the amount of staff and thinking we can replace them with staff that we're filling in so many gaps. We've got we've got PE teachers teaching science and we've got, you know, IT teachers covering drama lessons. And it's just like we're plugging holes in a sinking ship, mm. just trying to make it to the end of the year and hoping that something changes. But there's a there's there's a point where you can't plug those holes anymore. There comes a point where that it will break. And we're so close to that that I don't think people outside of education realise just how close to that we are. Um, and that's the scariest bit is we also inside of education don't know when that day will come, but all we know is every time we go in, it could be, it could be today. It could be today that suddenly just the system itself collapses. We haven't got enough teachers. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough, you know, food to supply the canteen because we're just not profitable as, as a business as mm. some of these schools are trying to be. And it, it, it's it's scary, but you can only just keep going until you're told not to go. So you just have to keep doing it. Well, that's my last question to you, mate. Is how have you kept going through all of these changes? Because even though you're you're obviously very aware of and you describe very vividly what the challenges and problems are, I feel like there's a real positivity as well inside mm. of you and an optimism. Where does that come from, and and how have you coped at the darkest times? How close have you come to walking away? I've come, I've come quite close, um, but for all of the negative things, for all of the things that are difficult, the kids, regardless of what age they are, the pupils, they're so unique and so individual, and you're so prominent in their life. You know, you you'll still remember teachers from your school, mm. whether they were positive or negative experiences. You'll still remember the impact that they played. You will always remember your time at school in terms of like those memories that are created and those things that happen, those stories you tell for the rest of your life. Mm. And I feel like with the right people in there, and I feel like I am the right person in there, I can make those, all of those things more positive, even if it's a tiny bit, making sure that I'm, you know, being approachable to kids, making sure that I'm doing my job to the best of my ability, making sure that I can put them in situations and give them opportunities where they can make memories, have experiences, do all of those things that when they leave and go off to do whatever they want to do, they still look back at their time in education and think, yeah, school, <laughs> school was shit. Cause that's what everybody thinks, yeah. but it was a laugh, wasn't it? And we had a good time. Oh, and I remember that teacher. He was all right. I didn't mind him. Yeah. And I, that's to me, is 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 worth more than any career that I've done. I've worked a fair diff, a few different careers, but you don't get that sense of that same sense of reward. Those those moments of like, for instance, my tutor group is they're year 11s, so they're in three weeks they're going to be gone because they're going to be off timetable starting their GCSEs, and I've just seen these kids grow. I've just seen these kids develop into like human beings and they're taught now that they're at the stage where they're feeling nostalgic about their time at school because they're all about to leave and they're talking about it so positively and with such optimism for the future and what they want to do and how these things have helped and it that's the thing that drives you that's the thing that keeps you going that's the thing that you feel regardless of their situation regardless of their views 
every single child deserves that feeling and deserves that experience. So that's why. George, you're a superhero, mate. Um, you really are. And I'm sure like, I've, I, I'm sure most parents can see the incredible role that people like you are doing for 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 the you know for society but i hope the rest of society can see it and wake up to it as well because jesus christ the comp- the whole country feels like it's you know creaking and about to collapse and so if it wasn't for people with your sort of passion then you know we'd be up shit creek frankly so you know um i'm really appreciative and and also you're an inspirational bloke mate it's great to hear you speaking with such passion about about what you do so thanks ever so much for joining me on the reset it's been a real pleasure no thank you for having me appreciate it that was george poynton you can follow him on twitter at george poynton underscore it's well worth it thanks for listening as always and don't forget to subscribe to the reset for more podcasts and newsletters from me you can do so at sandalaney.substack.com And give me a follow on Instagram, why don't you, where I go by the name of The Reset Sam. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack. 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.